You can't stop. But the killer will strike again. What is already started. Don't make me do this! In Twin Peaks. Fire Walk With Me. Rated R. Starts Friday, August 28th at a theater near you. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is Brian Kazaska, and we are here today for part two of the 30th anniversary of Fire Walk With Me. We have the Unseen Players coming back, and we also have our panel, which we had last time, Emily Marinelli from the Twin Peaks Tattoo Podcast, and Colin James from Cream Corn in the Universe. Welcome, guys. Hi. So glad to be back. We have about 13 scenes that we were going to talk about from the script of Firewalk With Me. Most of it is from the, the first draft. And I think we got through six scenes and we still have about another six, seven scenes to go. And you know what's exciting here is like some of these scenes have never been shot and they've never been, of course, then if they haven't been shot, they haven't been seen in the missing pieces or in the actual film. So I'm so excited about that to be able to, to dive into this. And uh, before we begin, I'd like to introduce the unseen players. Hi friends, it's Wild Bill Abelson. You know, 30 years ago this month, when this film made its American debut on August 16th at the North Bend Theater for the first festival, it was total sellout. They crammed me into the spare projectionist's booth. It was 105 degrees in that sweat box. Talk about fire walk with me. Well, in our alleged present, I'll be narrator for Lil's scene and Philip's scene. Then I'll play Harold Smith, Man from Another Place, and Fisherman Pete. Hi, I'm Julia Rollo, and I'm playing the narrator, and Josie. Hi, my name is Aaron Cohen, and I'm playing Special Agent Dale Cooper and the role of the narrator. Hi, this is Bob Clear. You can also call me Killer Robert. Uh, today, for this episode, I'll be reading parts for Stanley, Leo, and Jerry. Hi, this is Blythe Elise Horman. I'll be playing Cole in scene one, narrator in scenes five and ten, and Laura in scene six. Diana Stavrilakis. Hi, I'm Robin Lynn Norris, and I'll be playing Sylvia Horn and Carl Rod. Good evening. My name is Chris Matthews. I will be providing the voices of Deputy Cliff in scenes two and three, the bellhop in scene four, the narrator in scene six, and finally Johnny in scene 11. Hi, this is Marcel Fraser. I'm going to be playing Sheriff Cable, Ben Horn, and Big Ed. Hi, I'm Peter Holland. I'm playing Leland and also doing some narration. Hello, this is Andy Bentley. I will be playing the Gordon Cole, Sparky, and a Sheriff Truman. Hi, I'm Yvette Zepfel, and I will be reading narrator from scene eight, and because I'm secretly in love with him, Albert from scene four. Hello, my name is Maya Adkins, and I will be playing Jeffries and Laura. Hello, fellow Twin Peaks fans. This is Becky Plant, and I am playing Donna, narrator, and Laura. Hey, this is Joyce Picker, and on this podcast, I will be playing Laura Palmer, Nadine Hurley, 
and the narrator of Don't Forget Johnny Horn's Birthday Today. That's the Unseen Players. All right. So we're back to uh, diving into these uh, unseen scenes. Laura Palmer's bedroom, night. Laura is asleep. Mrs. Tremont's picture hangs on the wall. As if by magic, we suddenly begin to move into the picture, into the room in the picture, and through the dark doorway in the room in the picture. On the other side of the dark doorway, there is another room. Mrs. Tremond is standing in that room. She is beckoning us towards her, and beyond her through yet another doorway. We move through the second doorway, and on the other side of that doorway there is another room. Mrs. Tremond's grandson is standing in that room. He is holding his hands about him as if he is grasping an imaginary glass ball. As we move towards the space, between his hands a ring of fire appears there, and we move through that into the red room. The man from another place walks into the red room to a table. A ring lies upon the table. Cooper enters the red room. The man from another place turns towards Cooper. Is it future or is it past? Do you know who I am? I am the arm and I sound like this. The man from another place puts his hand in front of his lips and makes an Indian whooping sound. The man from another place picks up the ring and moves it very close to us. We recognize it as Teresa Banks's ring. The symbols on the ring are identical to the symbols of Owl Cave. Cooper seems concerned. Don't take the ring. Laura, don't take the ring. The man from another place moves the ring towards us till the ring fills the screen. Laura, in a somnambula state, is half awakened by a noise. It sounds as if someone is calling her name. She turns to her right to see who it is. Then turning back to her left, she discovers Cooper in bed with her. Cooper pulls her toward him into a beautiful kiss. Laura whispers against Cooper's cheek into his ear. Why didn't you help me sooner? Cooper rolls over on top of Laura as they begin to make love. On Laura's door, her mother calls her name. The sound is distant and mournful. Laura looks towards her door, then turns back to Cooper, but he is gone. Filled with fear, she looks down, and in her hand is Teresa Banks's ring. She screams. <coughs> Again, her attention is drawn to her door and her mother's distant call. Still holding the ring, she gets out of bed and goes to her door and slowly opens it. It is dark on the other side of the door. In the doorway, Laura gets a strange feeling in the back of her and turns to look at Mrs. Tremont's picture. There in the picture is Laura, herself, in the doorway looking back into the darkened rooms where Mrs. Tremont and her grandson were. Laura is in the picture. In the picture, Laura turns around in the doorway of the picture and looks down at her room. Laura sees herself asleep in her bed. She wakes up from her dream, trying to clear her head. Looks at the photo and nothing is there. Looks like the day before. She looks in her hand and the ring is gone. Laura gets out of bed and goes to Mrs. Tremont's picture hanging on the wall. She stares at it. Saturday, five days before. 
Laura has taken the photo down and removed the frame. Finding nothing unusual about any of it, she drops it all in the trash can. Laura sits on the edge of her bed and does some lines of cocaine to open up the day. So I'd love to start with Emily and what your thoughts are about this. I mean, some of this is in the film, but there's definitely parts that are not. There's definitely parts that are not. Yeah. So Annie Blackburn, of course, is the one that we see in the film, which is, I think, very important because she's saying, you know, the coop is in the lodge, write it in your diary. That's important information that comes in later. But the main problem, of course, is Cooper appearing in her bed and them making love. I mean, this is not okay for me on no. any level <laughs> this is I don't know. and even the why didn't you help me sooner let's just put pause on the making love part why didn't you help me sooner it also takes away laura's agency you know he he doesn't need to come in as that rescuer kind of character in in fire walk with me fire walk with me is laura's story this is her surviving her last week of her life and taking agency back. And so even that, why didn't you help me sooner, puts puts more power into Cooper's lap that he doesn't, funny the way I say lap, because we're going to talk about that later in the last scene, but um, it's, not, it's not appropriate. It's not needed. It's Cooper, of course, then even if it's an imaginary Cooper, or let's even say it's a Mr. C type of a character, the mm. bad Coop from the lodge, you know, somehow conquering Laura. We don't need to see that. It doesn't do anything. The story is about Laura, not him. Um, this is about her strength and resiliency, not him being a hero. And so it just doesn't work on any level. Cooper can't conquer her the way adult men in the story are always conquering her, raping her, her father, Ben Horn, One-Eyed Jack patrons, Bob. It doesn't work. But I do like that even in this version of it, at the very end, she's taking the picture off the wall and putting it in the trash. So she's saying, this is still, I'm still in charge, even though mm. it's the last week and I have some agency, even though I'm halfway in the dream lodge world and halfway still in my actual reality of life, I'm still having agency to take it off the wall and put it put it away somewhere. Yeah, Colin, what are your thoughts about this scene? So I have my fair share of internal screaming about the mischaracterization of Cooper in this scene and among other scenes. But I'm gonna try to go in order because uh, the first thing I had written down was with the grandson grabbing the quote unquote imaginary glass ball. I actually thought of it almost as like a light bulb as like some vague indicator of electricity. Because in the movie, uh, you know, of course, we hear the fire rise as he makes that gesture. And I think of uh, I think of how in season three, where Hawk, he talks about how uh, electricity is like the new fire and there's the intent behind it. I think in the case of the Tremont slash Chalfonts and this whole dream is just like this constant malevolence. But that was something that kind of stood out to me in terms of what I get from Lynch's uh, takeaway from fire and electricity. But the but as far as Cooper being bed, I actually have written down... Cooper in bed is all wrong, and uh, a lot of it does echo the sentiments of uh, of Emily. But the other part I think was an interesting take is that it shows Sarah Palmer screaming Laura, like as if I'm I'm assuming it's from that part in the pilot when she thinks she's home, but then she realizes she's not. And the thing is that there's a reason why that was in this script and not in the movie when Annie shows up. So I think there's a couple of aspects you can look at it. Like, for example, um, it, with uh, with her screaming Laura. It could also retroactively be something uh, relative to Judy, but also it could be something indicative of Mr. C or just just the general premise of screaming for her being in distress. 
Uh, but the next part I do have is that uh, is that it, in the script it does show that Laura sees herself sleeping when she looks back, at, you know, at the painting. Uh, so there's there's a lot to unpack, and I don't know if that's really the most concise way to bring it up, but those are the main points that I was thinking of during during this particular sequence. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Brian and I went to see uh, Fire Walk with Me on the big screen in a theater right before uh, season three came out, and I'm in the theater. And you can hear Sarah Palmer calling for uh, Laura during yeah. that scene. I'd never heard it before, but I don't know, because I'm in a theater and the audio and stuff like that, it's there. And I can still, I mean, if you can faintly hear it, it's around the part where she's looking at the door and stuff. It's very faint, but there is audio. And that's, I think in the script, it just, the script here just says there's some kind of sound, muffling sound or something like that. I don't know if it actually says Sarah's calling. I added that sound just because I was like, that's what I heard in the theater. I heard that sound. And I, if I was a better person, I would love to write an essay about Sarah Palmer calling for Laura because it, it not only happens in the pilot, it happens, uh, Cooper has a dream and it's like the owls are not what you seem and, and Sarah's calling there. And then of course we hear it in season three at the very end, Carrie Page is looking at the house. There's the sound of, of Sarah Palmer's calling for it and stuff. So if I was a better, if I was a writer, I'd love to write an article about what is Lynch saying about the idea of Sarah Palmer Palmer constantly calling for uh, Laura Palmer. I want to read that article. You should write it. You've got it. I'll give ideas and maybe somebody else can write that. But I, I it's feel a like podcast, ben. It's, a, it's a themed podcast episode. Yeah. I feel like there's something there. Maybe it's just the idea of, of, of the, the longing of wanting to reach out to, and help. And yeah. Is it connected? I mean, is our, like if you were to overlap all those scenes and that being the, the, the point. I don't know if they're connected or just this idea that Lynch is obsessed with Sarah Palmer calling out for, for Laura. And, and, and just to be that the very last thing he does in, in season three is that he does it again. He returns that. Yeah. Maybe it's just the idea of returning that you kind of had that in the pilot and then you return again to calling for her but it's almost like she this time she gets to respond right she called for her and the scene this is something i think about all the time but in the pilot she's calling but of course laura is dead at that time and then here it is in a way somehow you know she's dead but yet she lives again here as carrie page and she can actually respond maybe through scream I almost don't want to touch this, but I feel like we brought it up enough that Cooper in the bed is, it is so disturbing. It's so inappropriate. She is a 17 year old girl. I try to step back saying, what in the world was Lynch and Bob Angles thinking of even putting this in the first script? And I try to think, well, in the red room dream, Laura kissed him. So this is the next step further, but it's like, is it the next step further? Like, shouldn't have even typed this up or written it down. It just, it really is a disturbing thing. Yeah. I agree. I think the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, I wonder if there's something about her wanting to take in the good parts of him, like take in literally take in what it, what he represents mm. to be good and safe and, um, you know, a, a place of safety, but it just doesn't work on any level. Well, I mean, I'm, I tried to do it, but it just doesn't, it doesn't work. I mean, my only thought, and I agree with all three of you, I mean, I, and I think most people listening all agree with us. Okay, here's a stretch. As you guys were talking, I, it just popped in my mind. We know Laura Palmer's history. We know that any guy that in her life that might be trying to help her, her father figure, 
have done horrible things to her. So maybe it's almost like this weird thing where that's how that's all she knows. So if Bobby is trying to help her, but also he wants to have sex with her and her dad's raping her and there possibly was something with Ben Horn, right? I mean, so there's all these men in her life. That's all she knows. So Dale Cooper, we know, we know as a real life person, he wouldn't do that because as an FBI agent, he would not do that at all. But in her imagination or dreamlike state or whatever you want to call it, would that, how is that how she would perceive a, someone helping her? Would it go straight to that? That's the only thing I can think of, you know? Yeah, that, that actually really resonates in terms of um, many, especially young girls and women who are have early childhood experiences of sexual abuse, have a lot of boundary confusion, particularly with men in positions of power. And so I can see another example of that being, you know, again, we're not saying this is appropriate or should be yeah. in the script. I don't think any of us are on that page, but no. in terms of trying to make sense of it, right? Here's this person who is a man in her bed who represents good and is trying to help her and save her and that she needs something from him. She apparently needs to be helped, needs to be taken care of. And so there's that boundary confusion of here are these men in my life who are supposed to be helping me, taking care of me, like my father, for example, who it's now messy because that's what I know to be true. Men who are trying to help me and take care of me also want this thing from me and right. want something yeah. from me. Like all, a lot of her relationships are very transactional. Even later on, we're going to talk about with Ben Horn and drugs. And there's a lot of like sex equals transaction. And, you know, she's been, this is someone who's also been trafficked, sex trafficked for some years of her life right. as a young girl when she's in her sexuality development processes. So yes, I mean, I, I hear, I totally hear what you're saying and yeah, you're I, thinking about that. Yeah. Like that's how, I mean, I've watched enough law and orders. <laughs> you, you might have watched a lot of like, you know, uh, crime dramas and documentaries and stuff. And I mean, that is a definitely something that exists, like you said, and that I've seen on, you know, documentaries or what have you. Um, but so that's the only thing I could think of. Um, I don't know. Obviously, we'll never know why they wrote this into the script. I don't even know if they were thinking about that. But I would perceive it as, like you say, it's a man of power trying to help her, but she only knows men of helping her. And then that happening. So that's all she knows. I mean, and we know that Rip wasn't really Cooper anyway. It, it was a some dreamlike state she was in. Obviously, I don't know that though. I mean, the dreams. I mean, who knows though? I mean, so I mean, we we then replace it with Annie. Annie doesn't even exist yet for another few months. It really, no. she hasn't passed away, but she's there. With I think she's bloodied up as though she's you know gone in the red room, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I always it's almost like a blur. Twin Peaks seem to have this blur of like right through the dream world. Is it some kind of reality or yeah? yeah. So I mean, if 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 it was right, that, that's a great point, Ben. If you if you go with that theory with Annie and Annie was really there and we perceive that, then yes, hundred percent that scene should not be in there. Why would they write that? It's weird when it comes to the Cooper scene. I don't perceive that ever happening. And if that were to ha make it to screen, I would perceive it as something else 
just because I wouldn't want it to be true. It's yeah. also for us that we don't want to think about Cooper as being an extension of the evil that men do. Mm-hmm. And yet maybe he is in some ways because there's parts of him, like there's parts of all of us that are infiltrated by the evil that men do, right? Patriarchy, like violence, whatever that means in our society. So, I mean, this is all interesting. But some more yeah. articles for you to write, Ben and Brian. <laughs> Let's write articles. I pass them on to other people, other people. But these are things that we think about. I guess to uh, piggyback off of what uh, Emily was saying is that it's like uh, deeper recesses of Cooper. Because uh, when I think of Mr. C in season three, I don't think of it as like an evil version of Cooper. It's like the deepest, darkest recesses of him. And, uh, you know, it shows like, you know, he has this way with Audrey when she's unconscious. And uh, but, you know, then also conversely, we have the Dougie Jones part of him. And it's like the, there's these two polar opposite seemingly versions of him. But it's like the two most opposite spectrums of him. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I guess you could interpret the scene as like this is sort of a preemptive Mr. C type of moment. But one of the things I'm curious about is that I wonder if Kyle McLaughlin read this part in the script because I know he was weary of Fire Walk with me to begin with. Mm. And in the event that he read this and said, I want out, and he just kind of just figured that they would just like, you know, replace this and then he'd return. I I don't know. It's it's just that I, I could only imagine what Kyle McLaughlin would think if he, had, if he read through this part or some of the other parts with the egregious mischaracterizations of Cooper in this first draft. Yeah. yeah. Leo Johnson House kitchen. Leo Johnson is working on a creme de menthe bottle. He stands in the kitchen yelling to Shelly in the bedroom. Come on, Shelly. It's Saturday. It's cleaning day. Norma wanted me to work. Tell her to forget it. You're going to be working, but it's going to be around this house for a change. Leo points to the floor. I'm building this kitchen to last a long time. It will if you take care of it. Leo is ragging on Shelly. He is down on his hands and knees, showing her how to scrub the floor. Someone who knows how to clean knows where the object was before she started cleaning. And then the object goes back to its exact same spot. Shelly, I know where everything in this house is. Sometimes on the road, I mentally go through this whole house and picture where every item is. Lay off the bennies, Leo. Anybody can clean the surface of an object, but dirt can find its way anywhere. To really clean, you have to scrub below the surface where the dirt is, Shelly. Leo scrubs more. That's one thing you're gonna learn, Shelly, how to clean. Take scrubbing, Shelly. There is no easy way. This is where we live, Shelly. As if I didn't know. I'm gonna show you how to wash this tile and then you're going to do it. Come off it, Leo. What did you say? Leo goes over the top, pulls Shelly down to the floor. Shelly, I'm not fooling around anymore. The first thing you've got to work on is a good attitude. That's the key. Anybody will tell you that. Leo gives Shelly a good shot to the back of the head. Shelly falls to the floor. The phone rings. Leo gets up to get the phone. Don't even think about going anywhere, Shelly. I'm not finished with you. Leo answers the phone. What are you doing calling me here? No way. You already owe me money. Five thousand to be exact. Leo looks over at Shelly suspiciously. Did she hear him mention the five thousand? Shelly silently mouths. Five thousand? Colin, what do you think of this scene? Uh, well, the the biggest takeaway, because a lot of it is pretty close to uh, their scene, the missing pieces. But I think one of the biggest differences is that, uh, unlike in at least in the script, it shows that Shelly she's actually has to go into work for you know extra shift or you know Norman needs her. Hmm. But I think it really uh, reaffirms the idea of how controlling Leo is because you know it's like 
theoretically, you could think of this as extra money that they could use for the house. But at the same time, it's just a testament to how much of a grip he has on her. And it's actually a really good segue into what we see in the pilot, just in terms of how like threatening and just vile he is towards her. Emily, what's your thoughts? I just love this scene so much. I mean, this is where we live. Shelly is like just such a great catchphrase. I didn't know about the creme de menthe bottle. Like, does he, does Leo secretly like digestives or does he have like an elevated palate? I thought of him as like a Miller High Life type of a guy, but um, it's very realistic. Meth can make you stay up for days on end and deep clean a house. So it's very realistic what's going on, even though it seems really absurd that Leo is cleaning the house. Like, why would he bother doing that? And it's like, oh, does, is, does he just like want to clean house all of a sudden? No, he's high. Okay, got it. Um, in the missing pieces, they call it Sunday at the Johnsons, and it starts with church, a church scene, which is kind of like people exiting a church, um, which is an interesting juxtaposition to this, you know, intimate partner violent hellhole that they're in, you know, in their house. But it's kind of like a behind closed doors moment where we just see once again Leo in a funny way. And the unseen players do such a good job in this of like becoming Leo. They're so great. But you know, what, what makes it, what makes it work somehow is that Leo's performance and it's, it's seen here too is, is kind of funny. Like this is where we live, Shelly. It's like funny the way he does it. And so it makes it palatable, but at the same time, it's really serious stuff. I mean, let's not forget he's like, you know, pushing her to the ground, he's hitting her. This is a serious, serious moment. If it was being portrayed another way, it would it would be conveyed differently. So somehow it works, but the comedy offsets just how upsetting and tragic the whole thing really, really is. There's something about listening to it and watching it again in The Missing Pieces this time that almost made me think of like, yeah, like a, a mil- almost like a military family like almost like Mm. he's like a military type of dad who's reprimanding a child about chores like this is how you deep clean this this is how the you know like some kind of like ritualistic almost military like um performative aspect to it that i had never thought of before but almost like i wonder if leo's how much leo is actually really out of his mind like he's very very high here Mm. that seems really evident to me yeah what do you guys think the missing pieces felt so abrupt. Like we're, we're right there in the kitchen. Like this is where we live, Shelly. But here at least you get to see that there was a little bit more to the scene than what we saw. He does talk about, you know, he knows where all the objects are and, he's, uh, and he knows in his head where they all go. Really with them, it was made me think in the pilot, he discovers there's different cigarettes in his house, you know, like, and it's because Bobby is smoking in the house as well. Oh, but yeah. it made me think of that, yeah. that like this whole idea of that, like, I know where everything is. I'm going to control you. And then when, if I see something out of place, I'm going to bring it to, you know, to your attention. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. I have really nothing to add to this other than it's a great scene other than this is where we live. I mean, it is a great (laughs) quote and it's funny. And uh, we had the pleasure of meeting um, Bobby. Um, Oh, oh, Bobby. Yes. Dana Ashbrook. Yeah. We went to like a a Lynch event and a VIP and we got to say hello to him, which was really kind of cool. And we met Leo and and we met Leo, which we met him at like one of his first 
conventions, which yeah. is so, so different. Because I actually met him uh, a couple years ago myself, and uh, like he had a lot of people that were coming up to him once he started going to these events, where they'd be saying, this is where we live, Shelly. He legitimately has no memory of the scene at all. And it's uh, and I think it was uh, when I brought up with him, he was like, oh, okay, it's from Fire Walk with me. Uh, apparently, I think people just kind of said it to him just kind of offhandedly, but <laughs> yeah, and, but yeah, he was super nice. Like he is, way, I mean, of course, goes the same way nicer than Leo Johnson, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, I would say anyone gets a chance to meet him. He's he's absolutely wonderful to talk with. Big Ed's gas farm and the Hurley House day. Out in the yard of the Hurley House, Ed Hurley tries to skin a deer, which is hanging off a branch of a tree. He is not having much luck and is not showing much enthusiasm either. Nadine Hurley comes storming out of the house with her very own large butcher knife, very upset with Ed's progress. Ed! Ed! Nadine pushes Ed away. I'll take over here. Ed backs off and Nadine dives in slicing. You were cutting the steer like a sissy. Sit down and watch while I do it again this year. Ed slowly backs into the house. Ed joins his assistant, Sparky, and they stand in the living room gazing out the window at Nadine ferociously skinning the deer. Ed winks. Works every year. Ed and Sparky laugh. Sure wouldn't work in my house. My wife couldn't take the wrapper off a Twinkie. Emily, what do you think of this scene? Well, I I hope you guys know how much I love Nadine. I mean, she's such a badass. Colin and I just uh, spoke about Nadine yesterday. I'm looking forward to that Colin being on your show and having a Nadine whole moment that we had, but yeah, Nadine's a badass. Of course she's going to skin that deer. Of course she doesn't need Ed to do it. And of course he's going to do it incorrectly. And so good for her for getting him out of the way. She doesn't need him. I mean, of course I don't love it that she calls him a sissy, but you know, cause I don't like name calling, but this is another example of her being in charge of her. There's this kind of narrative that Ed takes care of her and she doesn't know what she's doing. And she's all over the place. She's the quote unquote crazy one in the town, but she is absolutely not any quote unquote crazier than anybody else in Twin Peaks. This is a, a, a town of freaks. She's another freak in a great way. And I love her so much. And she's got a lot of control, a lot of agency. She knows how to do a lot of things. And so this is just another example of that. I, I don't, I know it's supposed to be kind of a funny scene here, but I don't love the manipulation that Ed does to try to get her to do it. Why wouldn't he just say, Hey, Nadine, can you come out here and do this? You're way better at this than me. And this kind of the two men looking from out the window at her doing it, this kind of male gaze that she's trying to, with the drapes, you mm. know, have control over what's inside and what's outside. And they're sort of inside looking out to her, um, having this male gaze moment toward her commenting on it. The guy's commenting about his wife not being able to take a wrapper off a Twinkie. There's kind of this, you know, male kind of sexist energy I feel from them looking out toward her. Meanwhile, she's the one skinning the deer that yep. he can't even do. So <laughs> anyway, that's what I think about that. Yeah. And Colin, what are your thoughts about this scene? Now, my first thing is that um, I was thinking about how Lynch likes to get very over the top with certain situations. So my biggest thing I was thinking of, at least initially for the scene, is like how Ed was going to skin the deer and how Nadine, like how her mannerisms would be. I feel like it would be one of those things where it would be very over the top in that like almost funny sort of way. But uh, I will side with uh, Emily where like the idea of Ed kind of like, uh, you know, kind of playing her. That's like kind of a, I guess for lack of a better term, interesting dynamic. But I did think it was kind of weird where it's like there's this other guy who just happens to be over. 
and there's like this weird banter of sorts. It's not 100% out of character for Ed, but it does seem a little off the mark. Oh, uh, yeah, because like, theoretically, if this scene was in season one, for example, e- even that would just seem a little out of place. Uh, it's, I mean, it's it's fine. I, I guess it's a fine scene of itself, but it's uh, it's sort of like I think of like the two by four scene, the missing pieces, where there's stuff where like you know wh- whether you like it or you think it's a little out of place. Uh, sometimes it just seems like it's a little too removed from the main narrative of the story. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'll just add in something that we talked about yesterday a little bit, Colin, too, about Nadine is there's this kind of child and parent dynamic with Ed and Nadine that comes up a lot where he infantilizes her. And I feel like this is another way in which he's kind of infantilizing her, like, oh, look, I made her do that. Like, ha, ha, ha. And it's still, for me, meanwhile, like, she's the one out there skinning the deer. What, <laughs> you know, right. she's really like, she's got a lot more agency and a lot more power than you give her credit for Ed. So this is now me being a little bit spicy toward Ed, but I'm like, come on, Ed, you know, it's like, he gets, uh, I think, painted a lot as this rescuer character. And I think that uh, Nadine doesn't need to be rescued in all those ways that he tries to. It feels like a scene that would have happened when Nadine had her powers the skin of deer, to me, it just seems like it fits in that area. Well, Brian, <laughs> Nadine was always strong. <laughs> and the, and super the reason strong. she was always strong was because she could bend back uh, the uh, rowing machine or whatever it was. That's so true. Maybe she did. We always led to believe that she was just strong from high school, Nadine thing. But I think she was always very strong. You think she was holding it back? And then, like, when that whole thing happened, it just, it all came out. Like, she wasn't holding it back anymore. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think that trauma from childhood gave her superpowers that manifests in like super strengths. And then once she had a little bit of a depressive moment, tried to die by suicide and then didn't, she had like a resurgence where she developmentally Mm. went back to being 16. And then her superpowers got even stronger for a minute because they needed to developmentally. She needed to move through this cycle of living a childhood that she didn't get to live. And Colin and I talk more about this. I won't deep dive into that, but but that's what needed to happen. So she her strength is already there. It just got stronger. Fair enough. I, I, I can't wait to listen to that show, guys. Uh, actually, I guess the last thing I'll mention about this scene is that, and this is more behind the scenes, but uh, I think of uh, if we're on the top of Nadine's strength, and it's in episode two and episode nine where it really showcases her uh, her like her strength. And those both happen to be Lynch-directed episodes, and I don't know if those were in the scripts of those episodes, but I thought it was interesting that that was a trajectory that was set pretty early on. Uh, I mean, I guess you could kind of debate in season one that she just like she's like pulling, pushing that exercise bike out of anger, but I think it does set an interesting precedent of what we see for her in season two, and uh, coming back to this scene about how she would skin the deer and how she would go about it. So the other guy that was with Big Ed is Sparky. And he's a mechanic with, uh, I think he works with him at, at, you know, Big Ed's gas station. And he has been cut so many times. He was in the original series and he was cut like that rowing machine or whatever that machine was. There was a a deleted scene where uh, Sparky went to over the house to look at at the bent handle. Probably had two, at least two other scenes and he's been cut every time. So it's just funny. Here we are in the movie again. I don't know if it was, again, maybe it's a, a Lynch creation. And every time it just gets, he gets cut out of it. Uh, Joyce is the one who formed Nadine and she's performed Nadine in the past 
but we, you know, we had a conversation. She's always played Nadine as a high school Nadine. So it was funny, you know, talking with her and, and about how she had to play it a little different as adult Nadine. In a clearing in the woods, Sheriff Truman and Josie Packard break from a kiss. Smiling, Truman goes back to gently strumming his guitar. Josie, I think we should go public. That would be wonderful, but it's only been a year since Andrew died. What are you afraid of? What people think? I don't want to offend the customs of your country. Believe me, Josie, you would not offend the customs of this country. For instance, I don't eat fish eyes. Fish eyes? Even if it offended someone, I wouldn't eat a fish eye. Why wouldn't you eat a fish eye, Harry? I saw a guy eat a fish eye once in Seattle. He was digging through his food with his chopsticks for about five minutes till he found the fish eye and he dropped it into his throat. I guess it must have gotten stuck in his uvula because right away, he started to have trouble. His throat began to flutter like there was a wind blowing and he couldn't swallow and they rushed to him and loosened his collar and they were asking him if he was all right and he started to turn blue and his eyes started to roll back into his head and he still couldn't get the fish eye out and they tried to do the Heimlich maneuver. I went over to him as they were preparing to do an emergency trachotomy. They were over him with a knife when he suddenly shot the fisheye out of his throat and right into the ceiling. Splat! It just stuck up there and spread out. It was about the size of a half dollar. And that's why I don't ever eat fish eyes. Truman plays the guitar for Josie, then stops. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just the way I feel. It's the custom thing I was thinking of. In America, we don't use any part of the fish but the meat just to the side of the insides. We throw away the tail, the rest of the insides, and the head. I understand. We throw away the whole head. <laughs> Colin, what do um, you make of this? I guess the best part I could start off with is that I've done Harry Truman and Josie episodes, and they have this, like, their dynamic is more of just, like, shallow transactions where it's just purely surface level. So I think there's a conversation that shows that, yeah, like, maybe there's an attraction, but they're not on the same page at all. And uh, the, the fact that uh, that uh, Truman just goes off on this tirade about a guy choking on a uh, fisheye and just uh, witnessing the whole thing. It, 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 like, the, when Josie says that she understands, I don't think she really does. I, I, I think that in the event I was in that situation, I would just kind of, like, nod my head and just kind of, like, move on from the topic. But there's something ominous about how Harry says they throw away the whole head. Um, <laughs> it, it just kind of leaves that, I, I, I guess maybe the best way to describe it is that he probably wouldn't have like said it in such a tone if she said, if she accepted the whole going public with a relationship. I think there's got to be something, va- like there's got to be some vague connection of wastefulness and this opportunity that's being passed. Mm. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's really the best way to articulate it, but I feel like there's just something to that, that, uh, that I can kind of see but i also don't know if i can properly explain it con that's a really co- cool take i really like how you how it represents like how much they're on different pages and different wavelengths um because i listened to this like 10 times and i and i just and i'm like is this when sheriff truman was having like his alcoholic moment like i don't know how to make sense of this fisheye conversation not conversation monologue he's not talking to her about what are your, you know, what are you afraid of? Uh, what are you worried about? The, how the town will react? It has only been a year since Andrew died. Let's like talk that through. There's no like, let's really think about this together. It's like, 
here I'm going to wax poetic about <laughs> something about a fisheye. What is happening, Sheriff Truman? So I, I, it's really hard for me to make sense of, Colin, I really like your read. Um, I, I think, you know, I thought maybe he's just trying to say, you know, forget about it. I'm not going to eat fish eyes, even if people want me to, and we're going to go public and who cares what they think? Maybe, or or he's on a bender. I, I, I don't know what to say about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is classic Lynch, though. Lynch will go on his tangents about the most odd things. I feel it's very Lynch. I'm trying to figure out, is like, could it just be, is this a custom that Josie, where, you know, in, in China, is that a custom that they eat the entire fish? In America, we don't get hung up about you were together with this guy and a year later you're going to hang out with, with a new guy. Yeah, and just like in America, we're wasteful. We throw everything away. It's we only use a little bit of what we want and then we throw the, the rest away. I thought that too. And so the, mm. he's kind of making like a cultural commentary, but it doesn't totally translate for me. Does this really feel like you could actually put this in the movie? You have this, you know, a, a young woman who is dealing with being sexually assaulted by her father. And now let's talk about fisheye. I mean, it just doesn't feel like it belongs in this film. Yeah, I, I like Colin. I like your point and about them being on different wavelengths. But it reminds me a little bit, Ben, of, um, I don't know if it was Dumbland, when the guy's talking about hunting and he just goes on about hunting and killing so, I mean, it feels very Lynch. It feels like yeah. Lynch can go off on some weird tangent about some strange, Nonsense. odd thing. Like, it just goes on, and you're just like, what is going on here? And it's right. very similar to this conversation. You know, yeah. sometimes you, you you think about co-writers and say, like, well, who wrote which parts and stuff? Did Bob Angles write this? Did David Lynch? This is definitely David Lynch. <laughs> this is David Lynch one evening on his own, just, you know, <laughs> writing all this out <laughs> He had a thing with a fisheye, probably. Yeah. He wrote it down. Yeah. Palmer House dining room. Morning, Tuesday. Two days before. Laura sits at the dining room table eating her breakfast. Leland pokes his head in. Don't forget, it's Johnny Horn's birthday today. Great Northern, Benjamin Horn's office, day. Open on Laura's picture on top of Ben Horn's desk. Leland is staring at Laura's picture. Ben tries to blow up a large rubber Indian for his son, Johnny. Sylvia and Jerry Horn stand nearby supervising. Johnny comes up one inch in front of Leland's face. Happy birthday, Johnny! Happy birthday, Johnny. Johnny moves to one inch in front of Jerry's face. Happy birthday, Johnny! Happy birthday, Johnny! Ben reacts to a huge moccasin print in the middle of the birthday cake in the middle of his office floor. Why did we have to have the party here, in my office? Because Johnny wants it in your office. What's so private, private about your office anyway? Why can't we have the party in your precious office? It's a lovely place for a party, Ben. Look at the new decorations Johnny's provided. They look down and see Johnny's foot completely ringed in white frosting roses. Frosted footprints tail behind him everywhere. Johnny goes one inch in front of Laura's picture. Happy birthday, Johnny! Leland looks again at Laura's picture. He looks up at Ben. Don't you have a picture of Audrey, Ben? That sets Sylvia off again. Don't you have a picture of your own daughter, Ben? Where's Johnny's picture? And where's my picture I gave you? At the photographer's studio, getting a gold frame with monograms of your birthday and our wedding vows. Johnny moves one inch in front of Ben. Ben, trying not to explode. 
Happy birthday, Johnny. Johnny, Johnny, let your daddy and your uncle and Leland talk. Ben, Leland, we can play the French against the Norwegians. What do the French love more than anything? Boating. No. Hiking. No. Eating. You'd think so. Sex. You're getting warmer. Trees. Sectamente. They are nuts about wood. They get goofy over trees. I've never heard anything like this before. The French liking wood any more than anyone else likes wood. Are you three crazy? Sarah's cousin is French, and she can't stop talking about the trees around here. History is on our side, Ben. It's no accident that the great explorers were named Hennepin, Nicolet, Marquette. They were looking for wood. Ugh. As they talk, Johnny circles the blow-up Indian, and with a mighty bang, pops it with tomahawk. Bang! Later that day, Laura quietly lets herself into Ben's office. Ben looks up, happy to see her. I just wanted to say hello. You missed the party. Look at my office. Come here. He wiggles a packet of coke in front of her, and she steps to him. For a kiss. Sure, I'd do a lot more than that for it. Shh. Your father's in the next office. You should have seen him get upset at Johnny's party about your photo here. He's always been jealous of you. You know that. Laura moves in closer and kisses him. He responds. Emily. <laughs> I, I see. I, I, I didn't do this on purpose. It seems like you have to do these some of these disturbing scenes that you get to <laughs> talk about. Oh, goodness. Well, I'll say a, a few things and then and then give it to Colin because Colin has a lot to say about this party. I know um, this is there's a lot going on at this party. This is a chaotic situation. This listening to this scene made, made me actually have a lot more compassion for Audrey as if I didn't already, but just what it was like for her to be in this dysfunctional family that there's no picture of her or Sylvia, you know, or Johnny for that matter. It's just Laura. And I'll just speak on the last part about the transactional aspect of you know, him dangling the Coke in Laura's face and then asking for a kiss. I mean, this harkens back to what we were talking about earlier with Cooper, like like this, these relationships with men who she needs something from. She needs something from Bobby. She needs drugs from Bobby. She needs this from him. And and why does sex have to be a part of that? And this is, of course, a man, remember, who's trafficking young girls. Mm. I actually think this, I would have liked to have seen this in Firewalk With Me. I think it's implied we see Ben in some ways with with women and girls. We see him with Audrey and that whole thing that happens but at One Eye Jacks. But I would like to see this level of disgust, disgustingness from him in real time the way he is with Laura because we know this is happening behind the scenes, but to be able to see it and to see Cheryl Lee and him do this would would really add a dimension that I think would be really important. Um, and I have something to say about wood, but maybe I'll turn it over to Colin and maybe come back to talking about wood. Okay. Colin, let me give it to you. Okay. So actually, so I have more notes about this scene than all the previous scenes combined for this part. So <laughs> feel free to cut me off. Or if you have stuff to play off of, please, you're more than welcome to say anything. But the first one that I have written down is that I'm surprised that the first scene actually made to the missing pieces because there's that scene when Leland walks down the stairs of the Palmer so it says, don't forget, it's Johnny Orton's birthday. And then Sarah Palmer kind of mocks it, like, and then that's the end of the scene. And the thing is that I think that Lynch was adamant about this scene, because uh, mostly because of the contrast of Laura and Audrey. 
And for me, the reason why I'm okay with this scene as is not being in the movie is because I feel like Audrey absolutely needed to be in this scene. Because I think of like in Laura's Ghost, for example, I've read Who, but there were a couple of women that talked about how Audrey could understand the dynamic of Laura. Obviously, not to the to, not to the magnitude of what Laura deals with, but just having that like father where it's like there's this like uh, sexual deviant nature that's going on. There's just that inherent dysfunction trickle down in the in the family, and I think that having Cheryl and Fenn there would have added a tremendous amount to this scene. Mm. Um, I guess to go with the behind the scenes, I know that Cheryl and Fenn was not too big on season two. Happened to get the uh, the role of of mice and men. And the thing is that uh, I'm bringing this up is that Lynch apparently yelled at her when he found out that she got that instead of being in Firewalk with me. And I think that really reaffirms the idea of how important Audrey would have been for this scene. David was mad. <laughs> <laughs> he was. Oh, it's the yeah. first time he yelled at me. Oh. I'm like, well, you're yelling at me in the higher. I, I screen tested for this. Like, as a work to get this job. What do right. you know? Yeah, well, we can't replace you in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's I a good thing. Good. Do you want to talk about Wood, Emily? Um, sure. Well, it's Wood is... is really prominent in this whole story about what they're talking about and about for so it's like wood is what the french want it's what the norwegians want and um for me i hear that and i think about ghostwood and i think about colonizing land mm. and taking land away from and taking wood away from indigenous communities and particularly indigenous communities of snoqualmie and twin peaks and explorers they talk about french explorers and the theme of the party is Native American, like Johnny Horn's Native American party. And then, so it's not lost on me that they're talking about colonizing wood and taking wood and cutting down trees and like raping land and taking away land from, you know, Native folks. And then, you know, Johnny Horn comes in with this big tomahawk at the end and pops the Native American blow up character. Like there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of symbology in in wood and colonizing in this particular scene and what ben horn represents yeah on the on the topic of wood um i was thinking of the transition of like how leland and jerry they're talking about like uh what the norwegians like and they go from the transition of talking about uh uh woods to sex and the thing is that they're uh my big takeaway on that was that um i'm thinking of the part in the secret diary where it seems like Laura, she's taken to the woods, and and uh, Bob slash Leland has her way with her, and uh, I guess it's also worth mentioning in the secret diary is that she does talk about how Sarah Palmer doesn't like going to the woods, but uh, Leland likes going to the woods, and uh, there's just something about a weird connection of how because when I read the script and they they make that connection, I have no idea. I never would have made that connection myself, so I thought that was sort of indicative of leland's deviant behavior and how his mind works and the other part is that in the script it does refer to him as being quote-unquote oddly confrontational uh like as if there's something out of character like even the realm of having laura's photo on his boss's desk that this is something a little out of character for him and i guess to kind of wrap up everything pertaining to leland is that i actually thought it was really unsettling how laura addresses leland's jealousy of ben like that shouldn't be something that comes i mean i know ben his his uh relationship with laura is unethical say the least but uh, i feel like even the confines of what that is if you say your father's jealous it, it, that's got to imply something bad it's sort of like that scene at the dinner table where uh where uh, he says oh does bobby did bobby give this to you or did you get this from your lover and it just they're just something just completely just wrong about that dynamic with his daughter 
very disturbing. This was this was probably the biggest scene that we have. I mean, we've got uh, Joyce narrating, Peter doing Leland, uh, Chris is Johnny, Bob is Jerry, um, Marcel is doing Ben, and uh, Robin's doing Sylvia, and and, and Becky's doing Laura. And so there's a lot of uh, great uh, performances here. And I mean, I literally love uh, Robin doing Sylvia. <laughs> you don't get enough Sylvia in in Twin Peaks. Isn't, we don't see much of her, right? She like disappears for a very long time, yeah. and then she shows up to the, like the last episode. Right. And... Lynch brings her back. Yeah. Country Road. Pete Martell's powder blue pickup pulls into Big Ed's gas farm. Big Ed comes out to meet him. Hey, Pete. Can't believe your tank's dry up at the mill. No. Hell no. Just got in the truck, started driving, looked down at the gauge and saw a big E staring at me. You know what the big E stands for? Big Ed's gas farm. Yep, you're right. That's why I'm here. What'll it be? Fill her up. You got it. I haven't got it yet. Nice night. Yes. It is. Ed starts to clean his windshield. Pete points out something on the windshield. You missed something, Ed. Ed moves around, trying to see it. I did. I didn't see anything. Yeah, look in here. Look at it from this angle. Ed puts his head inside the truck. I see it. Ed reaches up to touch. Hell, it's on the inside, Pete. Ed flips him the rag. The inside is your territory. Pete starts to clean the inside of his windshield while Ed returns to work on the outside. Even this heavy work beats being at home with the old ball and chain. Brother, I hear you talking. Con, what's your thoughts on this scene? Honestly, I think this actually would have been a great scene in the original series. Like, uh, there's just something about Ed and Pete where they seem to share similar issues. I mean, I know people feel very strongly about, like, you know, certain characters and certain relationships. But there's something about that they have that commonality where they're they're in unhappy relationships. And it just seems like this would be a thing of, like, they would want to try to talk with each other just because, you know, it's like they're sharing the same feeling and they just want to vent because... Uh, you know, in their day-to-day life, they probably don't get to do it too often. Plus, mm-hmm. it also, I just love uh, Everett McGill and Jack Nance, so seeing those two together, which I don't think we really saw in the original series, but, uh, like, they, those two are always great, and it would have been great to see them together. I totally agree. I was thinking that, too, that it would be a great scene to have in the original series. I don't know about having in Fire Walk with me. Again, it just takes away from what's going on with Laura. It doesn't seem relevant. And, yeah, the big E, like, they're both running on empty, saying, you know, it's, it's something that's inside territory. It's like, no, Pete, you got to go do your own work here you got to go deal with your own stuff i can't help you with this i can only clean what's on the outside you have to go deal with what's on the inside (laughs) um you know and they're commiserating about these lives that they're leading with being in these relationships they don't want to be in basically right they're just they're like yep this isn't yep life is hard yep that's what it is in twin peaks and so you know i I like it too basically i love seeing pete martell in pretty much any scene so i'm happy to have this somewhere in season one yeah i think the uh my thing is that since this is like the second last scene for this recording that implies that this is like well into like when laura's like at her absolute worst state so Mm -hmm. it would have been really jarring to see like uh, Laura dealing with, you know, everything lean into, whether it's like the drug deal with Bobby going awry or find out that Bob is Leland. Uh, this scene just felt, would have felt a little too too jarring and just uh, not not appropriately timed. Like even, even if it was like earlier on in the script, 
it might have potentially worked, but this far in the script, I I actually think that it just wouldn't have worked at all. Yeah. Yeah. Long time ago when Firewalk with Me came out, there were all these rumors about the deleted scenes. I mean, we didn't call them the missing pieces, but there were all these shots. And one theory was like, oh, Lynch had plans to make a second film and he he just shot a lot so that when if he he got the go to make the second film, he could actually have it all ready. But you look at this stuff and it's like, no, this is not, you know, this is not a second film worth. And like, really, it's just him riffing and wanting to include all these old characters in some ways. But I don't, I, yeah, I don't think it really works. It's, it takes away from a lore story. If I had to guess, and I'm thinking of uh, when I read your lore disappeared a few months ago, is that I feel like Lynch just has this love for all the characters and yeah. was hoping that it could organically fit in the movie. And it probably even worked when he did the writing and shooting, but when mm -hmm. it came to editing it, he just realized that he couldn't do it. Like, I think of Michael Horse, he talked about how he actually got a phone call straight from Lynch saying like, hey, I wish I could have you in the movie, but I got to cut your part out. And Michael Horse was actually like happy that he told us like, yeah, usually you don't find the stuff out till you see the movie. But that, yeah. that, that really meant a lot that he went out of his way to do that. And you just get the sense that there was a certain heartbreak uh, that that he had to get rid of these scenes. I thought Marcel did a great job as Big Ed and, and uh, Bill played Pete. Uh, Bill is, uh, does a great job in different, the different characters. And actually it was Bill who brought this to my attention. I, when Brian and I were going back and forth, we didn't have this scene in our list to talk about for the show. But Bill said, you know, the second draft of Firewalk With Me has this scene. It's not in the first draft, but it was like when they got to the second draft of Firewalk With Me, they, they, they had written this. So thanks, Bill, for bringing this to our attention. So I think we have one more. This is kind of the end <laughs> end of the movie. Yeah, bracing for impact on this one. Um, <laughs> this is how the we, movie ends, I, you know? We have, like, we have very, I know that me and Emily have very short notes, but also a lot to say. So that's yes. why I place emphasis on the brace for impact. When we, when Ben and myself were going through the scenes, I remember like we hem and hawed about this. And I said, no, I think there's a lot to talk about here. Um, I thought was I, was, was I on the side of like why bother having this in the, uh, on the show or, or no? I can't. I can't honestly. I can't remember. But I, I, I know me and you discussed it though. I know right. we we thought was it worth it? You know. And I said it's I, ten seconds. Yeah, ten seconds. But I said to Ben, <laughs> I'm like, I feel like we have. A, there's a lot to say. Right. And I thought it was an interesting scene. So. So Julia is just narrating this, the end. So you know, Laura Palmer has been killed, and uh, this is the last shot of of the movie. Laura is sitting in a chair. As the end credits begin, we move back to see that Laura is sitting in Cooper's lap in the same chair. And that's it. <laughs> I, I'm adding this one off to Emily. Uh, I, I feel because, uh, yeah, there, there's just a lot to go off. But um, this it's 10 seconds that causes a lot of internal screaming. And uh, I feel like most people who read this and people listening to this probably can at least get where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah, we are. yeah, my my first read of this, I just wrote no. It's just no. Uh he doesn't get to be the hero. This isn't the return when he's the dreamer going back and trying to save her and having that hero archetypal savior complex moment. This is Fire Walk with Me. This is Laura's story. This is the last week and what she went through and how she survived. So what we actually see in Fire Walk with Me is she's sitting. And he's standing with his arm like on the back of the chair mm. and he looks down at her and smiles and then she looks down and it's kind of sad. And then I read it as she begins to like dissociate a little bit, which is kind of like checking out when 
when you have a realization or when when you're in a trauma response until she sees a light flicker and then the angel hand reach out and then she's nodding and crying as the angel comes down to her and Coop is still standing you know over her and and smiling and he smiles kind of knowingly which I don't I have mixed feelings about anyway which is in the movie not even in just what we heard I have this kind of I, I don't know I feel some type of way about that but anyway she's crying and nodding and I think really accepting and grieving that this is what is happening for her and this is where she's going and this is what has occurred and he's just standing and holding space for that and I like in the movie that she's not alone in that moment, mm. right? She is with him, even in this, you know, lodge space, wherever they are, whatever that means. And the camera freezes on her face and the credits roll over and she fades a little bit in the background, but it's still just her, right? Still her, her face, her pain, her experience and her transcendence. And that's the last face you see in the film. And that's about Laura and that's how it should end. Not this, what we just heard, what is happening? Right. No, no, no. It's I know. It just seems horrible in some way, right? It's like, why would she sit in Cooper's lap? And uh, yeah. It's like a placeholder, you know? It seems like they wrote it like, I don't know what to do here. So we'll just write that for right now, you know? It doesn't, it just seems so odd. Or is it still odd. trying to uh, go back to Cooper's dream? I mean, Laura didn't sit in his lap, but she was close to him, whispering in his ear, kissing him and stuff. Is it still kind of a, I mean, I, I also think that ending, if it is Laura's story, and it should be about Laura's story, but mm -hmm. in a way they bring Cooper in there. I kind of feel like that kind of is a strange way to wrap up Cooper's story in the sense that he was stuck in the lodge. And even though it's the past, somehow in the red room, there isn't maybe no, no time. time. So yeah. Cooper, even though he doesn't go in the red room for another two months, he's there and he can be there at the same time as Laura dying and they can have that moment, even though, and, and they did it right in the movie. They, it was, a, it should be about Laura and should focus on that. But I was wondering, like, is that lap thing supposed to be like, we're in this together now? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's a bizarre yeah. thing. The only note, the only uh, thing that I wrote down for the scene initially was, I hate this scene. Mm -hmm. And then the next thing I wrote down was, thank God Phoebe Augustine's hesitancy led to Lynch changing this. Because uh, I remember I saw there's a, at the UK Twin Peaks Fest back in 2012, it was her, Lenny Von Dolan, and Catherine Coulson. They were just doing a, a Q&A. So here I am at the chiropractor's office, <laughs> in the room where you get your adjustment and stuff, and the, the receptionist comes in, Phoebe? Yes, she said, um, David Lynch is on the phone for you. I'm going to take it up in the front. So I just went behind her desk, hello, it was David. And we talked for 10 or 15 minutes, maybe, because I had sort of run away. And um, he just talked me into coming back. And uh, I told him, I said, it's only ever just bad stuff, bad stuff happens to me. It's, just, it's always so bloody, ugly and everything. And he's, okay. How about if I give you an angel? Will you do it if I give you an angel? And so I was oh, oh yeah, okay, okay. Because uh, I think that if you ended this scene as is in the script, I think that there would, like, one, Firewalk Me would not have been reevaluated as, like, the classic it is today. Mm -hmm. And also probably no season three because... This is just a really bad ending. Um, I, it's like, I know the movie was like had harsh criticism when it came out. I think not having the angel would have just like completely just 
remove the legacy that this movie has because uh i well, for me and i'm sure this speaks for a lot of people's that that's all the stuff pertaining the angels throughout firewalk me that's probably some of the most visceral rewarding parts of the movie and it really gives that hope of like this movie that deals with the true evil and uh yeah removing that uh it, it just it just would not have the same feel yeah i agree and and cooper isn't her angel Right. It's not he, he, it's his lap is not <laughs> the holder of her experience like that's it in it, it infantilizes her. It makes it about him. He is not the angel. She has done all of this and she's accepting and she's being held and he's a part of it. So he's there and he's holding the space for it, but he's not holding her mm. in this transcendence. And that's the big difference for me. Definitely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it, it kind of goes back to. The, the sex scene in her dream or whatever kind of reminiscent of that i, I kind of feel like it's the same mindset it's not whoever, appropriate. yeah whoever wrote that scene this scene kind of follows that line i think but i almost feel like it does feel like a placeholder it does feel like maybe they were thinking of something else and they were just like because it is a lame ending and forgive me if i mentioned this on the previous part but i think of jordan peele he talked about whenever he writes a first draft, he always keeps in mind that he's pouring sand in a box so he can later build sandcastles. And I think that's the only way I could justify what we see in this script is that, yeah, there's some pretty bad stuff. There's egregious mischaracterizations of Cooper throughout all the stuff that we've highlighted. But ultimately what we got is like just some that like, there's a reason why we're talking about this for a 30th anniversary. Mm. So, you know, despite the fact there's very blatant missteps in the script, in the first draft at least, that uh, that uh, Lynch was able to, you know, refine it and make it some that's like, some that's been reevaluated as one of his best movies. You guys are working on a show? I mean, is it is it Firewalk With Me? Or it's, it's what is it focused on? Um, actually, for me, um, I have an episode called Laura Palmer and Her Last Seven Days, where I have uh, Aaron of uh, Paranormal Princess co-hosting for it. And it's an hour and a half of everything from the one year later scene up until the angel scene. Hmm. And it is, it's probably one of the more challenging, uh, I mean, there's some that in terms of research that are more challenging for my episodes, but in terms of this, and you'll probably hear in our voices that it is a very draining conversation to have of going through like every scene that what Laura's going through, uh, mm. what we get from it. Uh, it's it's a very tough episode, but I think it's also a very rewarding episode. This has been you know wonderful to go through and read through things I'd never read through before and hear it played out. The unseen players were awesome. They just did like dope performances. It was so much fun to talk about it with all of you. And, and, and yeah, Colin and I recorded uh, an episode um, on Nadine, which I don't know, Colin, when that's going to come up for his podcast. That'll be uh, probably mid September ish. Um, yeah. It's, I try to do this thing of like, whenever I record episodes, it'll be like sometimes early on, sometimes I'll get these massive chunks of episodes, but then release them on a weekly basis. So yeah, it's uh, that'll be mid-September, but I think that, and I actually told this to Emily yesterday, that uh, that's probably like one of the most engaging episodes I've had in a while. Just like the insight that I never would have thought of otherwise. So I guess this is kind of, sorry, I, I guess I'll, you know, I'll do my own plug for a Twin Peaks Tattoo podcast because it is legitimately probably one of my favorite uh, Twin Peaks podcasts currently on right now. 
And, uh, yeah, the fact, you know, it's like, you know, it's like she puts out monthly, but it's like an event every time I find out who mm -hmm. it is and what their backstory is. Um, yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't mean to steal your thunder, Emily, but uh, that's, uh, but that's like. Colin, you're just pumping up my thunder. Thank you oh. for saying that. I appreciate it. Yeah, Thank yeah. You. And I'm still waiting for all of y'all to get tattoos so we can talk about tattoos <laughs> on my Twin Tattoo podcast. Uh, Scott Ryan's Ryan. all about it. So he said to make sure to let you know that. And he wanted to be here, but also he had to go get a rug. So he couldn't come. So well, sorry about that. He told me to tell you. Oh, he had a rug. Well, it's funny because, you know, uh, she said, uh, Kimberly Ann Cole said she was on the phone getting a rug. It was actually just Ben and me trying to get the scoop and steal her away from Scott. And if you notice, there's two phone calls during that interview. And that's because the second time it was Ben and myself. And she's like, I got to go, Scott. The, the, Rug guys coming, and that was really us. For so. people who have no idea what we're talking about, uh, Red Room podcast recently, uh, Scott Ryan had a, a great interview. Can we now reveal who that is, or is it still going to be a surprise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kimberly and Cole, right? Lil, Lil, yeah. yeah. And um, and then there's two phone calls that are Ben and myself trying to get her to come on our show. So you'll <laughs> hear that eventually. You'll hear the that version of the interview down the line. No this, way. This, this is like the strangest interview I'd ever listened to. It was. It was a, it, I mean, I give Scott credit because it's tough, but she just seemed like she was in her own world and she she was just kind of disconnected from Lynch, disconnected from any of it. And she just seemed almost kind of like 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 she thought it was very humorous the stuff that scott was doing like i was at the airport and i danced like you she's just like why would you do that like <laughs> speaking of scott ryan the the new issue of the blue rose magazine issue 17 is coming out and it's all lost highway uh which is going to be awesome but i have a, a piece in there about harold smith mm -hmm. kind of doing a little bit of a psychological dive about harold smith as a hermit archetype um, which is really, really great. So you don't want to miss that. And also Scott and I were able to see David Patrick Kelly, Jerry Horn in um, Into the Woods on Broadway. And yeah. we got to do a little interview with him afterward. And so there's a little, our little interview in there with, with, with DPK, which is awesome. And he was, it's running, they just extended the run on Broadway through, I believe, past labor day i want to say in september so if this comes out and people it might be the end of september people are able to go see into the woods on broadway it is incredible i don't even like into the woods very much it's not my favorite sondheim and i've seen it i went back i saw it twice wow. uh, and david patrick kelly plays the mysterious man and the narrator and he is mm -hmm. phenomenal and sarah Bareilles is in it and all kinds of people that you will know and love it, it's a great show and scott and i were there and we got to talk to him which was awesome and if it's okay, I'll plug one more thing if, yeah. if it's cool. Okay. Right. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to mention is that in it's a ways away, but in 2024, that's a ways away. It's two years from now, but I have a book coming out on Fayetteville Mafia Press uh, that I wanted to just mention. And um, it's, it's called Comfort Sequels, the psychology of movie sequels from the 80s and 90s. So I've taken all my favorite terrible movie sequels from the 80s and 90s, and I'm writing about them. So I've got like Grease 2, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, Ghostbusters 2, um, My Girl 2, you know, you name it. You think of a bad movie sequel from that time period, and I'm going to probably write about it. And I've got some great celebrity interviews in there, too. I've got uh, 
Steve Whitmore, who created Rizzo the Rat and the Muppets, to, to and I got to talk to him about the Great Muppet Caper, yeah. uh, Christine Ebersole. I've got two of the T-Birds from Greece too, including Maxwell Caulfield, who's a cool writer. So anyway, lots of good stuff coming. Fayetteville Mafia Press, 2024 comfort sequels. Wow, wow. congratulations. You'll have to let us know when the, yeah. the pre-order. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gremlins 2, you mentioned. If you're yeah. talking to anybody about Gremlins 2, I love Gremlins 2. I mean, it's not as good as Gremlins 1, but Gremlins 2 as a kid, I loved. Um, it was like a Warner Brothers cartoon come to I life. Know. Do you remember the fact that there was a theater version and a yes. VHS version? Yes. And the theater version had Hulk Hogan. And yeah. then the theater, the VHS version had um, Leonard Maltin. That's right. Yeah. And I always want to know nobody ever talks about how there was two ver- like <laughs> i remember it but i don't know many people who bring that I up that. and i they had it- to change it when they broke the fourth wall because they did a fourth wall break as if they were breaking through the vhs cassette yeah. player yeah, uh, yeah, for yeah. the for the vhs version of it yeah so i totally mentioned that in that chapter you got it yeah i want to yeah, read that That's oh so- my gosh yeah and we should talk about it some more too and yeah each chapter has uh, kind of like fun facts at the end and cameo mentions and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of Gremlins to the new batch is the greatest anti-sequel sequel ever. And yep. I talk about Gizmo at having a hero's journey throughout the film, you know, when he goes through his Rambo sequence. Anyway, yes, there's yes. a lot to say about all these movies. Yes, I, I, I will definitely pre-order myself and everybody out there should too. That sounds awesome. Thank you. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I, I'm so glad you guys could be on, and I look forward to the future of your, your podcast. I, I Can you guys, uh, starting with, with Colin again, can we follow you and tell us uh, you know, briefly about your, your podcast again? I'm on uh, Facebook and Instagram as Creamed Corn and the Universe, and on Twitter it's at You Stole the Corn. And uh, my podcast, it's more of a uh, character dissection from a different co-host each week about where they look at that character, their insight, and uh, it's always like a, it's very conversational as well. And depending on the characters, it's totally different. Like, for example, talking about a character like, you know, let's say like Hank uh, would be completely different than talking about like the man from another place. So it requires a certain type of research and a certain outlook and sometimes kind of like reading between the lines. And also I did announce recently that uh, I have a secret history special coming out, like starting from October onward. So it's going to be focused on the non-fictional characters uh, from the secret history, like Meriwether Lewis, Chief mm-hmm. Joseph, uh, Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons, Richard Nixon. Uh, so that one, that's going to require a tremendous amount of work, but I'm pretty happy with the people who I'm be working alongside with. And I think people who like the secret history will get a lot out of these as well. Nice. You do so great, Colin, with all your research too. Like it's just, it's chock full of information, but it's really palatable and like fun and interesting to listen to your uh, episodes, Colin. So um, yeah, so I'm Emily Marinelli and I'm on Instagram at at M's Marinelli and TwinPeaksTattooPodcast.com. And I have uh, new uh, monthly episodes. September episode is going to be Lane Freefall, who's a, a tattoo artist and also happened to be in a Star Wars movie. And so I have a great talk with her about what it's like to have a Twin Peaks tattoo and be a tattoo artist. Um, and each episode just talks to a different person about their relationship to their Twin Peaks tattoo, what Twin Peaks means to them and what it's like to wear their ink. So follow me, listen to the episodes on iTunes or also SoundCloud. And if you have a Twin Peaks tattoo and you want to chat, hit me up. And I just want to thank the Unseen Players again for their performances. Great job, you guys. I feel like this might be the last 
Twin Peaks performance as the unseen. I mean, unless unless I can somehow break in and get the season three script, I feel like this could be the end of. Uh, yeah. We had a, a few years here, Brian, of us uh, doing the whole. We had uh, uh, the Pink Room doing acting it out, and then we had this group of people, and it, it's been a lot of fun. Not sure if it's worth mentioning, but I know that um, when Mark Frost and David Lynch first started working together. They actually did have a script for Goddess, and according to uh, In Conversation with Mark Frost, it did actually get through, and people liked it. But the thing <laughs> is that one of the Kennys ended up being on the Writers Guild, so that's why they couldn't do it. So I don't know if there's a script for Goddess that's floating around, but I wow. think that would actually be a really interesting one, because Mark Frost has a lot of great insight in that book about what he got out of it, what he thinks Lynch got out of it, and... There's, uh, you know, of course, like he has like, you know, they have their own like ways of they approach it just because the way they approach politics. So yeah. I think that if you could ever find a script for that, I think that would be an, like, an incredible episode to cover. Yeah. We got to get Stephen Miller on the case. <laughs> I think he could do it. If anybody can do it, I think he can do it. But we should wrap up the show. But I didn't realize this is kind of the last one until Stephen Miller unearths goddess for us or season three script get get me that season three script do you really think there's a season three script i don't know no there's uh, one big binder that i, I they, they showed us that there's a binder out there of the whole thing we'll never see that we'll never ever I, well actually me and uh emily we're gonna see kyle mclaughlin in october and uh if he's the only one that's had the whole script i mean i'm sure you wouldn't have it on him but oh he'll it, have it, it on it'll... him and we'll just ask him for it at spooky empire i'm sure he'll give it to us colin and then we can get send it over to ben and brian that's yeah, a really I, good plan that's a good plan yeah. i'm sure i have the five years the nda is up i'm sure that we can kind of figure <laughs> something out and get some for your show it's uh it's it's not the most well planned out but we make it up as a go along so it's fine thank you guys thank you for everyone thank being fun. part thank of you this both as well yeah um it's been a pleasure your both your shows are amazing and we love what you do we'll be back in a month with something i don't know what we have in store but you'll find out in a month. And if you want to send us an email at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com, you can follow us on uh, Twitter, like us on Facebook. And we're on all the platforms. And we'll be back in a month. We'll see you all then. Thank you. I mean, I, I wasn't a fan of David's. I didn't really know his work. I never really saw Twin Peaks. I got casted by a picture. Jo Joanna Ray, who was the casting director, had a picture. I don't know if I met David. But I never read for him. So at the time of my career, I was playing a lot of New York cops, gangsters, a lot of energy. So when I got to the set, the first scene that we played, it was in a trailer with Harry Dean Stanton, Chris Isaac, me, and I think Kiefer was there. Yeah. And it never, it never made it to the movie. They cut it. And, but what it was was I went in there and I started doing my thing like I do, East Coast cop, gangster, a lot of energy. So obviously I could see David and I never, I knew, I didn't know his style, how he should start. So I'm thinking they cast me for my picture. They must know what I do. Hmm. So in the scene, obviously he's not happy. He comes over to me and he says, I paraphrase, he says something like, I want you to pause so badly, so much that I want you to be uncomfortable. Huh? Meaning that the pace was too quick. So, the, because it never aired in the film, I was still the person like they cut the, the scene because I wasn't good in it. So it was, and then when I saw the movie and I saw his style, I thought he was a genius. And I, I don't use that word a lot. He is, I mean, he can make you laugh, cry, and scare the shit out of you in the same thirty <laughs> seconds. Yeah, I mean, he is special.